Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you've given us this Lord's Day to gather again, that we might be a people who worship you in spirit and in truth, being able to sing to you and pray as a church and take communion and hear the word proclaimed. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be gracious with us this morning, that you would bless us with your presence, that you would bind us together in love, those who are here, those who are listening remotely, that we would find great unity in this time of isolation. I ask specifically, Father, that you would take this passage from Hebrews 7 and you would make it alive, have it jump off the page at us, enable us to see that Jesus Christ is the forever high priest. Enable us, Lord, by your spirit to see and to listen to him and by your grace, follow him. We pray, Lord, that you would do that, that we as a people might live lives that are truly pleasing to you. We are so thankful, Lord, that he gave his life as a ransom for many and you've called us to be part of that many. We do pray, Lord, this morning for all of our leaders, for those in the county, those at the state and federal level, and leaders throughout the world, in the midst of much chaos, that you would grant common grace to many, that there might be wisdom in the decisions that are made, that you might thwart the work of the enemy, that you might destroy the schemes of the evil one that wants to divide, that wants to bring confusion. We pray specifically for your churches here in the South Bay. We pray, Lord, for all the true churches here in this country and throughout the world that you would equip the leaders and the members of those churches to listen to the high priest, to seek wisdom in the word, and to be unified as a people that we might not be divided by this world and divide ourselves. I pray specifically for Cambrian Park Baptist Church, Lord, that you would graciously increase our love for you, grow our faith in Christ, increase our love for one another. Use this time, Lord, to do a mighty work in our hearts and minds that we might come back a changed people, stronger, more faithful, more courageous, and as Pastor Kurt prayed, more eager to share the gospel that gives us the very hope that brought us here this morning. We desire, Lord, to glorify you. We've gathered to worship for that reason. We want to be edified, we want to grow, but above all else, we want you to be glorified. So be glorified during this time, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. When I went to prepare the service outline, I actually forgot some of the order. That's how long it's been. Uh, that's what, 20 years of doing a service outline, and I thought, where, where are we here? And I know most of it's probably me and my older brain not working like it should. Um, there's a chance, maybe a small chance, that this could be the best sermon I've ever preached, having nothing to do with the passage or even my preparation, but when people are hungry, they eat. So I dare say that if it's been, how long has it been, 11 weeks, 12 weeks, I don't even know how long it's been, but if you're hungry and you're here, you're gonna feed on this, I could probably just get up here and read the scripture and you'd say, that was the best sermon ever. I pray that's the case, that it is one that truly touches you in a manner that brings transformation of heart and mind. 
1538, those who were fighting against the Protestant Reformation in Switzerland, they threw out our dear friend, the great reformer John Calvin. They cast him out of Geneva. When he left, he was in the middle of an expositional series in the book of Romans. They decided three years later to bring him back. And so in 1541, he came back, he ascended the pulpit, he opened the book, and he started right where he left off. He did not say a word about his banishment, but simply resumed the exposition of the text. He wrote a letter a little bit later to William Farrell, a friend of his, and Calvin said this, I took up the exposition where I had stopped because, Calvin said, quote, the whole purpose of preaching is to glorify God, to worship him in spirit and in truth. So if you gathered this morning, if you're listening online and you had some expectation of me doing a coming back sermon or a COVID-19 sermon or something along those lines, then you're going to be either disappointed or elated because we're going to stay with Hebrews 7. I left off, if you remember, in Hebrews chapter 3. You say, well, no, you've preached and Pastor Kurt's preached and Kirk has preached. We haven't really preached. We gave a sermon online, but preaching requires those present to receive the word. It's not sufficient to just have a man stand up and proclaim from a pulpit in an empty church. So this is the first sermon in this church since, what is, was it, March 14th or something like that. We left off in God's providence, the culture would say ironically, but by God's providence, in Hebrews chapter three, and I had a chance to preach some of the most powerful verses in the entire book. Hebrews chapter three, the author said, take care brothers, now listen, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then he said, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's where we left off. And I pray by God's grace you've been faithful to that. We have members in our church right now that are struggling, significantly, spiritually struggling. And so I don't think it was by chance that God left us with that warning and that exhortation. John Calvin, like every true pastor in the history of the church, has a desire to glorify God in seeing people under their watch care make it to the end. You know that, right? A pastor with a true heart for Christ and the people, they want to glorify God by ensuring, protecting, praying for, and leading people all the way into the promised land to make it all the way into the rest of God. The author of Hebrews has that same pastoral heart, and believe it or not, it's revealed in this passage. He's writing to a first century church likely Jewish Christians in Rome being persecuted, thinking about turning back to the old covenant, thinking about going back to Judaism, going back to the law, going back to submission under Levitical priesthood, under the sacrificial system. He wants them in the midst of the trial, and I want you, and Pastor Kurt wants you, and you want you to stay the course in the midst of this trial, to not turn back to anything, After weeks of isolation, many pastors, including myself, have the same concern. What sins have taken root in your heart? 
these past several weeks? What doubts have turned to fears that have led to a lack of faithfulness in the living God? What idols have been erected without anyone noticing because no one's around? After a severe warning in chapter six, you remember a severe warning about turning away from the living God and not being able to be reconciled. The author last week started this incredible argument and he he would be a fantastic debater. He wants to establish Jesus Christ as the supreme high priest in the entire gospel story. And so he started last week by talking about Christ coming from the order or the line of Melchizedek. And we saw last week, if you were paying attention, that this Old Testament figure pointed to Jesus Christ as the high priest that we are to put our faith in now and forever. This priest king of Salem that we met in Genesis 14, he received a tithe from Abraham and then he blessed Abraham and in so doing, he, by God's grace, was elevated above Abraham. Melchizedek, this priest king of Salem, higher than Abraham. And if Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and as we saw last week, Jesus comes after the order and the line of Melchizedek, then Jesus is greater than Abraham, Jesus is greater than Isaac, Jesus is greater than Jacob, and Jesus is greater than every single Levitical priest that came from Abraham's lineage. And this was significant. And I pray that last week, if you listened, you got that. The Jews hearing this in the first century would have gotten it. They understood that the priest that you follow is the difference between life and death. It's the same for us today. If God is holy and man is sinful and the only way to come into the presence of the living God without being judged is to have a mediator, a priest, someone that can make this connection and make a way to God, then you better make sure that you have the right priest or you're no different than those first century Jewish Christians who are thinking of turning back. So the author sets out and he continues to establish the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now if you're sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, you're not gonna talk about it again, are you? I am, today, next week, and for probably several more weeks, why? Because one of the fundamental problems Christians have is missing Christ as high priest. We miss him. And so the author starts in this part of his argument to elevate Christ by doing two things, by revealing the deficiencies of the Levitical priesthood. He said there was something wrong with the old priesthood that you can't hold on to. And then he turns around and he compares the line of Levi with the line of Melchizedek. And he shows that the line of Melchizedek leading to Christ is infinitely better. And so I I would like to do the same with you this morning. And I hope that you don't find it boring or irrelevant. But instead, I have the same hope for you that it would draw you into, draw you near to the living God through Christ. Because deep down, that's where you want to be. Deep down, that's where you need to be. So I pray you'll do that with me. Number one, two points today. One, the deficiency of Levi's line. Why did it fall short? And number two, the supremacy of Melchizedek's line. Why was it better? Okay, so some of you have masks on. Are, are, are we good? Are we still eager and hungry? I, listen, I don't want anybody falling asleep. 
Two, you can't, it's actually so few people that I'll just see you. So, you know, it's like going to be easy for me to see. I can't see the people at home, but I can see you. All right. Uh, one, the deficiencies of Levi's line. So if you find yourself annoyed or disinterested with all this dialogue about Levi and Melchizedek and the old covenant and the law and the sacrificial system, if you said, I, I really don't want to talk about talking about this, I get it. The author of Hebrews has a very practical and I would say urgent warning to draw our attention to it that should cause us, if we have any sense, to listen with all our might. Look at verse 11. The practical and urgent call that we might have eternal life. Verse 11, the author writes, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So again, I want you to follow along with me as I read because I want you to get this tomorrow and Wednesday and next week. I want this text to really make sense to you. What is required for any man or any woman to enter the rest of God? What is absolutely necessary in light of God's holiness? We're told here in verse 11 that that man, that woman must be perfect, made sinless, without blemish, without flaw of any kind, because God is holy. Psalm 5.4, you heard it read already. The psalmist David writes, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes, speaking of God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And then the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.9 said, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So coming into drawing near to God, coming into the presence of God, and enjoying the rest of God is contingent upon, listen, your sinlessness. You must be holy as God is holy. You must be perfect as God is perfect. In God's economy, it's not good, better, best Christian. It's Christian made perfect by Christ or not a Christian at all. The problem for each and every one of us goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And we know this problem well. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they made themselves imperfect. They made themselves sinners and therefore it was impossible for them to remain in the presence of the holy God and so what did God do he cast them out of the garden Genesis chapter 3 the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the garden of Eden he drove the man out and placed him on the east side of the garden of Eden and cherubim and flaming sword flashing back and forth kept them from coming back in to the presence of God why God is holy and they were now sinners Sons and daughters of Adam, whether you know it or not, most of you do, you've inherited Adam's sin. Not only have we inherited Adam's sin, but we exercise sin freely of our own flesh. We make ourselves unfit, imperfect, for a perfect, holy God. Now, I, I don't say that to be mean. I state the simple truth because unless we know the truth, we can't have an answer. If we remain deceived and think, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm good enough. God's holy, but he's not that holy. 
If we think there's any means of coming into the presence of a holy God, not being washed white as snow by Christ, then you are deceived and your end will be destruction. And so I pray that you hear the depth of the problem that you might see the way out, which is Christ as your high priest. As sinners, if we want to enter God's rest, we need to be made clean and not just a little clean. You don't need a a quick wash and a little wax. You need to be cleansed through and through every fiber of your being. This perfect righteousness required by God according to the Bible cannot be obtained by you. You cannot do it on your own. You can't do it. They couldn't do it through the Levitical priesthood. They couldn't do it through the sacrificial system. You can't do it through any work of any kind. No moral law that you establish, no good work, no service, no sacrifice. The Levitical priesthood and the law of sacrifices had no real permanent cleansing power. Look with me at verse 11 again. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, now skip forward with me, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The author is simply saying, listen, if the If the old covenant worked and the law worked and the sacrificial system worked to make people clean, then Aaron and his line, it's sufficient. We wouldn't need another priest from another line. But we're told, look at verse 12, a change in the priesthood and a change in the law was required because Levi and the priesthood and the sacrificial system has no power to make anybody perfect. Look at verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken, speaking of Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The, tr- the, the Judaites were not allowed to serve as priests because they were not Levites. Under the law of Moses, only men from the tribe of Levi, only those who were qualified as Levites were able to serve in the temple and offer sacrifices to the holy God on behalf of a sinful people. Only they were allowed to serve. But because this system was insufficient according to God's plan of redemption in making even one person sinless, Because this plan was insufficient in overcoming the sin that keeps us separated from God, that is your greatest struggle right now. Regardless of what you're going through, your greatest struggle, your greatest problem is being separated from God by sin. So God raised up another priest and not from the line of Levi. He raised up another priest from the tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah, the son of David, in the line of Melchizedek. Look at verse 15. This becomes, this deficiency in the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, now listen to this, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, that is from the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now last week we 
we were introduced to Melchizedek and we realized that there was something very interesting about this man. He was described metaphorically as someone without a father or mother, having neither beginning nor end of days, nor, nor days nor end of life, and resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Now you say, well, there was only one man that could truly be described as having no beginning of days nor end of life, and that was Christ. Only one high priest sent by God not through an in a Levitical lineage, but according to this, by the power of an indestructible life. Only one man in all of human history fits that description. And it was no man coming from Levi. It was no man under the old covenant. It was no man practicing the sacrificial system of old. It was no man that came under the law. It describes, of course, look at verse 14, our Lord who descended from Judah, that is Jesus, that is the son of David, that is Christ, our Savior and King, our High Priest. The one who experienced destruction on the cross, whose life was utterly destroyed, but refused to remain dead. Christ was a very stubborn man that way. He was not going to allow death to overcome him. The author is describing the one who overcame the power of sin and death by the power of God. Exercising this indestructible life by rising from the dead. And he didn't just rise from the dead. We're told that he ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God. And he now what? He now intercedes as our high priest. We'll get to that in a minute. He assumes the position of the high priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system that they oversaw, they were precious and they were good. They were instituted by God so we know they were. But they were a means to an end, not an end in and of themselves. They were to lead us to the high priest Jesus Christ. To his perfection that he grants to us freely by grace through faith to make sinners like us perfect too. My beloved, you should, that should be something that should cause great joy in your heart that someone like you, that someone like me, sinful through and through, wretched beyond degree, can be made perfect and holy by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He lived that perfect life and then he ascended the cross, he died a sinner's death, and then according to the scriptures, because he lives an indestructible life, he rose from the dead as it was prophesied on the third day in order that he might give to you and to me freely by grace through faith his imputed righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own. You have none. If you have any righteousness, it's given freely by God through Christ. It's imputed, it's alien, and it's perfect perfect righteousness that we need to commune with God is given freely by grace through Christ. It's the only way to have rest in God. It's the only way to enter back into the garden and have God as our father and Christ as our king and the Holy Spirit dwelling in us is to have the righteousness of Christ. It's the only way to be made perfect. God understood 
that the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system, he understood that it was unable to make anyone perfect. That's not why he instituted it. It was insufficient to make even one man perfect in the eyes of God. Now, here's the question for you before I get to the next point. If the system that God established in the old covenant was insufficient to make even one person perfect, then how much more deficient is the system of salvation that you have established in your own life? How much more so? God, through Moses, established a system so detailed, I dare say most Christians have not read through it. You say, I can't do Numbers. I can't do Leviticus. I can't do the last part of Exodus and Deuteronomy. I'll take the beginning, I'll take the end, but the middle I'll leave out. So detailed, we don't even know it. He established a priesthood and practiced a sacrificial system for 1,500 years. The Levitical priesthood The law under the old covenant, it was precious, it was beautiful, it was glorious, it was particular, it was codified in the Bible, it was historically established, and God said, insufficient. Insufficient. My beloved, I don't know what your system of salvation is. I don't know what you've created in your life to make yourself right with God. But I know it falls woefully short of the system that God said, it is insufficient. Maybe you are trying to be perfect on your own. Listen, perfectionist, this is my sin. Top of your class, employee of the year, best father, best mother, best son, best friend. Maybe you're just trying to please your parents or become rich and famous or save the environment. Whatever it is and whatever Bible verses you've attached to it to justify it, your personal perfection program, your PPP, has no hope of making you perfect. Whatever your personal perfection program is, it does not compare to the old covenant, and that was insufficient. It doesn't come close to the old covenant. Those Levitical priests, they were sacrificing animals by the tens of thousands year after year for centuries. And they couldn't do it. So then what hope do you have of your system saving you? I say this in love, you have none apart from Christ. Apart from Christ is your high priest giving you his perfection freely by grace. You remain dead in your sins and transgressions. You're just like Adam and Eve. You're still on the east side of the Jordan. You haven't been brought across the river. You haven't made it past the cherubim. You haven't made it back into the garden. You don't know the rest of God unless you have Christ as your high priest. You're still outside. Oh, I pray you'd come in. I pray you'd come in. So if you've been listening, we've seen number one, the deficiencies of, the law, of, the, of Levi's line and why you do not want to allow any other high priest to rule over your life. There's no perfection in anyone or anything other than Jesus, amen? All right, point number two. The supremacy of Nikhilzadek's line and why it is so reasonable to follow Jesus. 
the supremacy of Melchizedek's line and why it's so reasonable. I love it when the Bible gives us compelling reason, logical thinking to go, this makes sense. The author does that in this next section. In verses 18 through 25, the author continues his argument, establishing Jesus Christ as the high priest of God, the only way to come back into his presence, to make it into heaven, by giving us three comparisons and contrasts. And he compares and contrasts the priesthood of Levi to the priesthood of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Levi that ended with the coming of Christ in the new covenant, it ended. And the priesthood of Melchizedek that is fulfilled in the priesthood of Jesus. That goes on as we heard read already forever and ever. And he makes three simple comparisons. And so I want want to do each comparison briefly and I want you to remember them. Because it's something that you can use to encourage you tomorrow and the next day. He says very simply that the gospel is better than the law. You say well duh. The gospel is way better than the law. He says that an oath made by God is way better than lineage or biology or Levites. And then he says that which is permanent is better than that which is temporary. Those are the three comparisons that he makes and I want you to hear them and revel in them and be encouraged by them. So first he argues, the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a better hope, that's an understatement, it's a better hope than the law because of this. Now listen, the gospel not the law, has the power to draw you near to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, not the law of God, has the power to draw you near to God. Look at verse 18. Keep following, keep understanding. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now the former commandment that he's talking about in verse 18, he's not talking about the moral law of God, he's not talking about the 10 commandments. This former commandment is the ceremonial law, specifically the sacrificial system exercised by the Levitical priesthood. And he said the ceremonial law, it's weak because it was only a shadow. It was only established, all those sacrifices on the altar, all that blood, all the flesh mutilated was a signpost to lead us to the high priest and the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So it's weak in that it was a shadow. It's not the substance. The substance is Christ himself. The substance is the body and blood of Christ on the cross being broken that we might be redeemed to make sinners perfect by God's grace through faith. And in so doing what? Well, my beloved, here's the good news. If you're made perfect by the righteousness of Christ, you have no worries about drawing near to God. Right, you wanna draw near to God. You wanna have his presence. You wanna enjoy his presence. You wanna be sustained by him and encouraged by him and one day by his grace come into his presence for eternity. And if you've been washed clean and there's no sin that keeps that barrier between you. And so Christ is the substance, not the shadow. It's a better hope, my beloved, because the gospel of grace says that God's sacrifice, not man's, is sufficient to make us holy. God's sacrifice through Christ is sufficient to purify us. The ceremonial law was weak. Paul says in Romans chapter one that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. 
The ceremonial law does not have that power, but the gospel does. The ceremonial law is unable, insufficient, imperfect in making sinners perfect. But the gospel, Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7, the gospel reveals that in our high priest, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You know you have no merit on your own. Whatever merit, whatever good work, whatever religiosity you bring into the presence of a holy God thinking somehow you've made yourself worthy or perfect, God will not receive. Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, he shared this parable. It's one that you read and you shudder because you know which one you are and it's not the latter. He talked about in this parable how detrimental it is to put our trust in our own righteousness, to think that somehow that enables us to come near God. Listen, Luke chapter 18, two men, Jesus is speaking now, two men went up to the temple to pray. They went up to do what? To draw near to God. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, he prayed thus, listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This man had put his faith in his own goodness to draw near to God, not in the goodness of God to draw people to him. Now before you write that man off as a fool, I would argue that's the disposition of our heart. We think somehow, some way, by what we do, by our good works, by not telling lies, by not committing adultery, by giving offerings, that somehow we make ourselves ready to draw near to God. That is a lie. You want to be the tax collector, by the way, and they were not thought of well in the first century. Verse 13 of Luke 18, Jesus said, but the tax collector, standing far off, he won't even draw near to God because he knows he's unworthy. Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is that how you approach the Lord? Is that how you draw near to God in prayer? Is that how you prepared yourself to come to the service this morning? Is that how you'll leave to engage in the rest of this day? Is that how you'll go to work tomorrow? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Listen to what Jesus said. I tell you the truth, this man Speaking of the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. And then Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You got two options, and there are only two, and all mankind fit into these two categories. Number one, you can pursue your own righteousness. You can pursue your own perfection thinking somehow you've done enough good to come into the presence of a holy God. That's option number one. If you choose that option, you'll be like the Pharisee. You'll be humbled forever in the lake of fire. Or you can take option number two, which is the option we want. We want to be like the tax collector. We want to come before a holy God and say, be merciful to me, oh God, I am a sinner. 
God says that when we humble ourselves, recognizing that we have nothing to offer, and we receive freely what Christ gives, which is his righteousness, then we can come into his presence. God says that we will be exalted. How high? As high as you can go. The Bible says that you are going to be drawn up into the heavens with Christ and seated with Christ in his throne. You can't get any higher. But you cannot get there on your own. And if you try, you will fail. Only in Christ, my beloved. Only in Christ. So we see the gospel is better than the law. The law can't get you there. The gospel can. Second thing, the contrast he makes is that of an oath over biology or lineage. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, and it, it being the the better hope of Jesus' high priesthood, it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, the Levites, were made such without an oath. Verse 21, but this one, Jesus Christ, he's speaking of, this one was made a priest by an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord That's God the Father has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. The Levitical priesthood under the old covenant was established by a decree of God in the law of Moses. Men from the tribe of Levi fit to serve in the temple were called to serve. But you had to be born according to the line of Levi. Not a Levi, not a priest ever according to the law of Moses. In other words, the Levitical priests were not established by an oath. Only one priest in the history of God's redemptive story was established by an oath from God, and that is Christ. That is Christ. So when the ceremonial law ended with the coming of the new covenant, so did the Levitical priesthood, but not so with Jesus. Look at verse 21. This one, speaking of Christ, this one was made a priest with an oath. In other words, there's no chance of this storyline changing again. Right, you see the old covenant, new covenant. How do I know there's not going to be a new, new covenant? And how do I know there's not going to be a priest higher than Jesus? Because the author of Hebrews is saying, God made an oath, that will never happen. He made an oath. And it wasn't an oath by the recipient. We think of people raising their right hand and politicians taking an oath. Right? This is not an oath by Christ. This is an oath, oath by God the Father saying, he's going to be a priest. He's going to intercede for my people forever and ever. Now, we use that word oath. It literally means a sworn statement. You say, no, that doesn't mean much today. It doesn't. It doesn't. People take oaths all the time and they break them. They take oaths during marriage and they break them. They take oaths in contracts and business and they break them. This is an oath from God. Look at verse 21. This one, unlike the priest of Levi, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, That's God the Father. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And he quotes David's prophecy from Psalm 110.4. You are a priest for how long? Forever and ever. After the line of Melchizedek. Look at verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus Christ because he was established by God in an oath, makes him the guarantor of a better covenant, the new covenant that brings life instead of death. A covenant, as you know, is a contractual agreement. The old covenant, under the law of Moses, it was temporary. 
the ceremonial laws, the Levitical priesthood, they were all part of God's beautiful plan of redemption, but they were terminal in nature. Not this new covenant, not the better covenant. The new law is the gospel of grace. The new high priest is Christ himself. The gospel remains and Christ remains for how long? For how long, church? Forever and ever. You say, well, how do I know that? God swore to it. Look at verse 21 again. The Lord has sworn and what? Will not change his mind. God will not change his mind. He said, I swear, Jesus, Father saying, I swear, Jesus, you are a priest forever. Jesus Christ, by God's sovereign oath, is and forever will be, listen, he's the only way to heaven because he's the only high priest. He's the only mediator. Paul made it very clear in 1 Timothy 2. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. There are not many ways to heaven. There are not many priests and many religions. There's one way, one God, one mediator, and that is Christ. Now our sinful nature, we, God speaks it. He says Christ is the high priest. That should be sufficient. God's word should be sufficient. But our sin nature is such that we even doubt God's word. God speaks and we doubt it, but he is so merciful. Listen, he is so merciful and so loving toward us and so patient. What does he do? He says, I'm not only going to tell you that Christ is high priest, I'm gonna swear on my own name that he will be high priest forever and ever. God the Father, out of his love for us and his great patience for us, us, he took the stand. He raised his right hand before humanity, before all creation. And he said, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me, me. Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant because his priesthood is forever established by an oath of God himself. It's pure grace. Oh, my beloved God did not have to make an oath. God is free. He's bound by no one. He did not have to make an oath swearing something to be something so good that Christ himself would be the only mediator forever and ever so that we might be saved. He did not have to do that. He's not bound. And yet to increase our faith, he said, I swear. And God cannot tell a lie. He cannot tell a lie. So the gospel is better than the law. It enables you to draw near to God. An oath is better than lineage. It makes Christ, the guarantor of a better covenant. I got one more. Can I give you one more? Where are you going to go anyway? Right? I mean, come on. We haven't got lunch today. One more. The supremacy of Melchizedek's line, because it's permanent. It's permanent. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, verse 24, he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You see, Aaron, the first high priest in the line of Levi, he was commanded by God to ordain his children to the priesthood. Why? Because Aaron was going to die. In fact, every high priest who ever served in the tabernacle or the temple ceased in the office because of death. Not so with Christ. Look at verse 24 again. He holds his priesthood how long? Permanently. 
because he continues forever and ever. Christ died and then rose to never die again. There had to be many Levitical priests because they were all subject to death. One would die, someone would have to rise up above him, but there's only one high priest, and that is the priest in the line of Melchizedek who God said by oath, he will be my priest forever because he lives forever, he continues forever. And because he continues forever, look at the benefit for us in verse 25. Because he continues forever, he is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You say, what's the application of the whole sermon? 25's it. It lands us in a place you don't want to leave. In fact, I would say you want to take this verse and meditate on it every day for the rest of your life because it's such a great place. Because Jesus is a forever priest, because he will never die again, because he has no one who will succeed him, he is able to save to the uttermost. Now, there are different translations for that word. The word in the Greek is pantales, and it means complete or saved. You'll get this now saved to perfection. You say, no, wait a minute. We started the entire sermon like that in verse 11. In verse 11, you said, if perfection had been attainable through Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest? And yet here we're saying that Christ can save us to the uttermost. He can save us perfectly because he has perfect righteousness to give through the cross and his blood. He can make us perfect. So when he ascended the cross and he took the wrath that we rightly deserved, he made a way for sinners like you and sinners like me to draw near to God and not be put to death. We can draw near to God because Christ in his death and resurrection, he takes us by the hand and he leads us. We're on the east side of the Jordan. He leads us across the waters. He brings us back into the promised land. He passes through the cherubim. The cherubim destroy him on the cross. He dies that we might live and he brings us all the way back into the presence of a thrice holy God and we don't die. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Only through Christ can you be made clean. Only through the high priest can your sins be forgiven and paid for in his blood. Drawing near to God, drawing near to a holy God without being made completely clean results in death and not just physical death, but eternal death forever and ever. But all who draw near to God through Christ the high priest who God the Father swore will always reign in the office, they receive salvation by grace through faith. Not a result of their own works. No sacrificial system, no Levitical priesthood, no submission to the law. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And so we can draw near to God and not be destroyed. We have, right now, access into his rest because if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So if you're not resting, that's on you. You have the Holy Spirit enabling you to rest today. Because of Christ, we can enter into that rest now and we can enter into that rest forever because that's the promised end. That's the eternal eschatological perfection you will enjoy in the presence of a holy God, you being holy as God is holy. 
He always lives to make intercession for them. That's us. This high priest who sits upon the throne, he always lives to make intercession for us. Jesus lives now, right now, in the presence of God, interceding, intercessing for sinners like us, and we need it. We need him to intercede on our behalf every single day. Through his death and resurrection, through forgiveness and grace, he becomes your advocate. He becomes the one who declares your righteousness by his life. And it says that he lives for this purpose. You realize that? That the creator of the universe now lives for the purpose of glorifying God in sustaining you in sanctifying you, and one day, according to Romans, to bring you in the presence of God, glorified, holy, perfect. That's what he's doing right now. He said, what is Jesus doing right now? He's interceding on our behalf. As high priest, he has the capacity to act on our behalf in unlimited fashion. As our high priest forever, my beloved, he can meet every single need you have. Some of you have significant needs right now. Every single need you have, he meets as high priest. You say, you know, over these past several weeks, I don't feel like anyone's been looking out for me. No one's been caring for me. Your high priest has every moment of every day. He said, over these past few weeks, pastor, I've been lonely, I've been afraid. Who's been helping me? Who's been encouraging me? Your high priest, Christ, has. And so... Pastor, if you only knew the sin that I've been in, if you only knew the sin that I've struggled with these past several weeks, not gathering, not being in the presence of the saints, Christ has and intercedes for every single one. This is the certainty the Christian can have now, to approach the throne now, to have the hope of rest in God now, knowing that Christ, your high priest, who is forever and ever intercedes for you. There's no need to think that the sins that you committed last week, the sins that you committed last night, or the sins that you committed before you gathered here today can keep you from the Father. Confess those sins to Christ. Christ intercedes on your behalf. You're washed white as snow. And so Christ says, come back in. Come all the way in. There's no need to worry that the promise of eternal life will elude you. There's no need to think, I'm not good enough, I can't make it in. You're not good enough, you can't make it in. But Christ is, and he promised you will. The high priest, after the line of Melchizedek, has secured for you personally, by his blood, a position in heaven forever. He secured that. He has given you freely his righteousness. So you are right now, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of the temptation, all the evil thoughts, all those cursed words that come out of your mouth, you are right now in the eyes of God, if you're in Christ, you are perfect. Do you believe that? Because that's the heart of the gospel. You've been made holy as God is holy that you might enter his rest. 
not fear, not condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not fear, fear, not condemnation, but freedom in Christ. Not turning back to an idol, but pressing on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called you where? Heavenward in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know the good thing? You can go back and listen to it again. Get this in your head. Get it in your heart. See who Christ really is. It will impact how you live today. And if you meditate on it tomorrow, tomorrow, and by the Holy Spirit, maybe for the rest of your life. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us for not wanting to dwell on these deeper things. We heard the warning in chapter 6 that we ought not be satisfied with milk that we don't want to come and hear the basic ABCs of the faith again and not swim deep into the waters of salvation and come to understand to a great degree how incredible our high priest really is. Oh, Father, I ask that you would be gracious with me and my brothers and sisters and your church here at Cambrian Park. Be gracious with us that we might see Christ clearly that we not, might not fall back onto an old religion or an old moral pattern thinking there's some way that we can make ourselves right. Help us to see clearly, Father, that we are sinful through and through, that truly there is no one righteous, no, not one, including ourselves. And then, Lord, turn our face to the cross that we might bow down to our sacrificial high priest and praise his name every day, that we might see him and love him and rejoice in him. I ask that you would do this, Father, for your glory, of course, for the magnification of Christ's name, for the satisfaction of the spirit that dwells in us. I ask that you would do it, Lord, for your people. Make your high priest, Jesus Christ, our high priest in our hearts and minds. We ask that you would do that today. Now, in Jesus' name. Amen.